Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Great to be here in Stockwell. My name is Joel. For those of you who I haven't met before, uh, it really is a joy to be here again. Uh, I have lived uh, in London for over 10 years, and I have never, ever got on the wrong train, heading in the wrong direction, until this morning, when I realized uh, I was heading to, to Edgware, I think, instead of uh, Stockwell. So I had a bit of a panic, uh, but I'm here, and it is really good uh, to be here with you. Uh, as Lars said, we are uh, spending some time as a church refocusing on the theme of discipleship, this uh, massive part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, specifically uh, in this moment, in this city, in this unique time that we are in. And this series has really been a few years in the making as we have thought about uh, some of the challenges, some of the things that we are facing uh, in society and as followers of Jesus. Um, I'm sure you've noticed that we are living in one of the most, uh, what feels like destabilizing times in recent history, one of the most challenging times in recent history. And change is happening all over the time, and most of it is not necessarily good news. But not only are there challenges at a kind of global or national level that we are seeing with wars in Europe or the cost of living crisis, but uh, we also live in a moment that is actually deeply personal and affects us, uh, every one of us, at a personal level as well. We have more access to people's lives through technology and social media than ever before, but in general, we are more lonely. We know more about the challenges of the world. We, we can see everything that's going on, but we feel like we don't have any power to do anything about them. In general, we are uh, more wealthy than any generation before us, and yet we have more anxiety. Uh, we're battling with that as a, as a society. And we have more information than any generation before, and we're probably more divided, or at least as divided or polarized as any generation uh, has in how to answer some of those challenges in this world. Accessible but lonely, knowledgeable but powerless, wealthy but anxious, informed but divided. And finally, we have the most habit-forming device ever made, and we carry it around in our pockets. Mark Sayers, uh, he's a pastor in Melbourne and has uh, done a brilliant podcast called This Cultural Moment. He said, uh, summed it up like this, which I think will f feel more scary on this massive screen. Uh, but the biggest challenging we're facing uh, in this technological age is the battle for what it means to be human. And so in a moment like this, uh, we feel as a church, and I think we'd say probably the UK church, we were at a conference last, last year uh, with various leaders across the UK, and really do feel like this is a thing not just for us, but for uh, the whole church, is that uh, we cannot just be forming, uh, or we cannot just be living with a kind of superficial faith. And instead, we need to be forming what Gabe Leons and David Kinnaman call resilient disciples that are equipped to firstly know who we are in Jesus, and secondly, look to him to be our guide and help us to navigate some of the challenges that we are facing in this world. And so this series, uh, which you've got little uh, booklets to accompany with you, which we hope will be helpful for you there. Just some guides for your own reflection um, to think about some of the subjects that we're going through in this series. We feel like this, this is like a foundational series for us and one that will grow and develop over uh, the next months and years as we increasingly focus in on discipleship and what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this moment in this city. 
We're also encouraging communities to uh, look and study this uh, in their own groups as well, that one of the most important facets of discipleship, which we'll talk about in this series, is community. Followers of Jesus don't do this this life on our own. We get to do it with one another, and we think that's really important. And because we feel this is a kind of foundational series for us, we are encouraging communities to do this together. So we just feel like we are on this journey as a whole church. But firstly, if we are doing a series on discipleship, uh, it is important to ask the question, uh, what is discipleship? How do we define it? Well, discipleship is all about who or what is shaping us. What is influencing the person we are becoming? Who are we allowing ourselves to be guided by and shaped by? And another word that's often used alongside discipleship is this word spiritual formation, the person we're being formed into. And the reason why this is such an important time, as I've kind of said, is that we do live in the most formative time. We are all being formed all of the time, every single day, whether we actually realize it or not. And whether you would call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, we are all being formed by someone. We're all being discipled by someone or something. We're all formed by our environment. We're formed by our relationships, the people we choose to live with or the people that we were brought up with. Uh, and we're shaped and uh, formed by our habits, those things that we do every day without even thinking about it. Just one silly example. Uh, since moving to London, I have lost the ability to walk slowly. I don't know if anyone else can relate to that, but I just I can't seem to do it. If I kind of go home to my parents' place and kind of go on a walk, I kind of have to walk and then stop, wait for them to catch up, walk and then stop. Wait. Like I've just lost this ability to walk slowly. And I think it's because the busyness and the hurried nature of this city has just kind of got into my body and it's affected me without even realizing it. I kind of needed to get out of that this space to kind of realize what I was doing. But perhaps most importantly, our environment, our relationships, and the habits uh, that we have, they are all shaped by a narrative uh, or uh, answers to the question of what it does mean to be human that maybe we can't even perceive. When I walk quickly in London, I'm not really realizing it, but actually when I take myself out of it, that's when I realize, oh, this is what's driving this action or this, uh, this habit that I have. So if we're shaped by our environment, what is the driving narrative? We can all relate to maybe walking fast in London. We can all at least see it if we don't do it ourselves. But what is driving that? What is the reason for that? Well, perhaps it's that way because this city is driven by success and ambition and achievement. Perhaps I walk fast because it gives me a sense of my own self-worth. Or I'm too busy to walk slowly and therefore too important in some way. And I'm living up this, to this goal of trying to be a successful, ambitious person. Habits do not form in a vacuum. And so the question for us, as followers of Jesus through this city, in this city, is what is forming us? Who or what are we allowing to shape us into becoming certain kinds of people who think in a certain way, who act in a certain way, and who make decisions in a certain way? Because following Jesus is exactly that. It's allowing him to be our guide, to be our light. It is trusting in his direction and following in his example. It's surrendering our lives to him. Here's how Dallas Willard described uh, discipleship or spiritual formation. He said that spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. But I also think it's really important for us to recognize in a series like this, 
uh, that many of us will bring to mind different things when we think about discipleship, probably based upon our own experiences. For some, we might think of like a quiet time in the morning. For others, it might be sort of mentorship, uh, things that we've maybe experienced in the past. And it definitely is those things, but it's also so much more than those things as well. And so to uh, help us, I think what uh, I'd encourage you to do is use the resource to really think through uh, what has discipleship looked like in, in my life? How do I reflect on that in my own journey of faith? And then do that in your community as well. But what we also have done is create this kind of sentence to kind of ground this series, but also our approach to discipleship, if you like. Uh, and we hope it's kind of memorable for you as well as you, uh, as you think about it in your own time. And we've uh, come up with the sentence that discipleship is the daily journey of being loved by Jesus, learning from Jesus, and living like Jesus. It's a daily journey because it is exactly that. It is living through the ups and downs of life, in the most difficult times and the most joyful times, of knowing that we, first and foremost, are loved by our Creator, that we are known by Him, we are seen by Him, we are led by Him, and we're invited then to learn and live like Him in this city, in this time. But I don't know about you, but uh, often when I think about my own faith journey or my own uh, discipleship, uh, I always rush to the doing, unsurprisingly, with my tendency to walk fast. But I, I often just think, how do I become more like Jesus? How do I do it with my own control, with my own willpower to try to achieve this kind of goal of, of, of what I'm trying to get to as a follower of Jesus? And the temptation, I think, of this approach is to squeeze our discipleship into a series of tick lists or tasks that we put on our shoulders. And what's been my experience with that kind of approach has actually just been a sense of guilt, that I'm never actually doing enough, or I actually fail, or I find it hard to fulfill that set of tasks or that tick list that I've given myself. And I think the opposite is, is also true, that if we can, through our own willpower, fulfill those set of tasks or tick lists, we can kind of like lose the power of what we're doing because it becomes more about completion rather than encountering Jesus as the creator and redeemer of our lives. And so the goal of this series is not purely to create, a, say, a tick list or a list of tasks. It's not for us all just to conjure up enough willpower to spend some time in the morning reading our Bible. Those things can be beautiful things. But there might be some of us here that have tried and tried and tried with that approach and just it just doesn't work for whatever reason. And you might be thinking, oh, no, they're just going to remind me of all the things, all the stuff that I just don't get to do, all the things that I feel like I failed at over the years. I do think it's important just to recognize on the outset of this series that we cannot expect everyone's discipleship journey to be the same with the multitude of different personalities, of different life experiences, life stages. Our discipleship journey will not all look the same all of the time. And in fact, it won't look the same throughout the course of our lives. There are different principles and practices that we will all share, but it's really, really important, and it's really important to uh, work all these things out in community. Uh, but how they actually might work out for them, for yourself in your own life, it could be very different to the person sat next to you. So my hope is that through discussion in your community, through looking through this booklet, uh, you will just learn more about yourself, learn about your own discipleship, how you learn, how you connect with God, and just grow in your kind of discipleship toolkit. Um, for want of a better phrase, throughout this series and throughout this journey that we'll take on as a church. And so where, where do we begin? When we think about discipleship, where do we begin in a series like this? Well, I think to answer the question of who, who am I becoming, we need to know who we already are. 
The beginning of discipleship is about knowing our identity by answering that question that Mark Sayers posed. What does it mean to be human? Over 10 years ago now, the uh, author and marketeer Simon Sinek gave a, a talk that's become one of the most viewed TED Talks uh, of all time, nearly 60 million views. You may have seen it. It's called How, leaders, How Great Leaders Inspire Action. And his basic premise is that most leaders, they quickly rush to what when it comes to thinking about their products or communicating their uh, ideas, whereas they'd be far more successful if they started with why. And he gives the example of Apple and how they broke into this, this computer market that was dominated by Microsoft. And he says that if they were to start with what when it comes to communicating their product, the marketing campaign would look a little bit like this. We sell computers. They're really well made and they look great. Want to buy one. Now, that may have worked. Uh, they probably would have sold some computers, I imagine. Uh, but I don't think they would have become one of the most successful businesses and actually a, like a cultural phenomenon, really, uh, of all time. Instead, they, start, they started with the why. And not just the why, they actually invited people into a story and gave people an opportunity to identify and become part of that story. And their, came, their campaign was as follows. We believe in challenging the status quo in thinking differently. The way we do that is making products that are beautifully designed and simple to use. Those products happen to be computers. Want to buy one? Now, if you saw that campaign or saw these, these posters with these iconic figures without a computer in sight, you would want to relate to that. You'd want to assign your identity to that message or that brand. And Cynic called this methodology the golden circle, and it's worked so well that most organizations now use that as a framework for their, cam their campaigns. And you really notice when it doesn't work very well, like if you're watching an advert with like, cinematic music and beautiful landscape, and then it's like they're selling home insurance, you think, oh, maybe just stick to the what, guys. Uh, but you see it when it doesn't work, work as well. Um, but the reason why the likes uh, of Apple and others were so successful is what they, what they did, what they were able to do, was to tap into a desire that we all have. Not necessarily to challenge the status quo or to think differently, but instead to answer the desire in all of us for something to identify with, to find an identity, to find a narrative and a story to live by, to give an answer to that question, what does it mean to be human? Or perhaps more personally in this case, what does it mean to be me? Yeah, I, I think differently. I want to challenge the status quo. I'm going to buy an apple. I have an apple, Mac, so I'm, I'm completely in. Um, but the philosopher Alistair McIntyre, he said it like this, I cannot answer the question, what ought I do, unless I first ask the question, of which story am I a part? And the French writer Antoine de Saint-Uxbury, I think that's pronounced, apologies to any French speakers, uh, says it slightly differently uh, in a pretty poetic way. He says that if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Now, what Cynic, Apple, McIntyre, and St. Exupery are saying is this. The way we live, our actions and our habits, flows from an identity, and an identity comes from living out a story. Not a fictional story, but a driving narrative that we live by and therefore allow to form and shape who we are. That is why when we think about discipleship, who we're becoming we start here. What, what story are we part of? And for followers of Jesus, the story uh, doesn't actually start with us. It starts with him. 
And how we know this is actually through a story, through the story of a family, a nation, a person, and a community. And through the story of Abraham and Sarah and their family, through the people of Israel, through Jesus, and finally, the church. It is this story that we find ourselves in and find out who we are, find an identity to hold on to that is secure and stable and strong. So let's read uh, some of that story. And we're going to read uh, a well-known psalm. It's Psalm 139 to kind of remind us of the story that we are part of. And as I read it, just allow the words just to sink in. Allow yourself to kind of get caught up in the story that we get to be part of. Uh, and we're all invited to be part of uh, from uh, what we read in Scripture. So Psalm 139, and the words will be on the screen. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even though your hand will guide me, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In this psalm, we see David, the writer, almost like reveling in the story that he is part of. That we first and foremost are created by a loving God who knows everything about us. And it not only speaks of this fact that we were created, but it also speaks of the character of that creator. We know from, from scripture, from Genesis, that God doesn't need to or didn't need to create us. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were completely self-sufficient as a community of love. And yet they speak these words. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And we read in Genesis that before God uh, had created and given this authority to humanity, he calls what he's made good. But once he makes us, people to receive the authority, the blessing, the fruitfulness that God offers, he calls it very good. And as followers of Jesus, our story begins with the loving God who created us to reflect his love back to him and to each other. 
And it's in this story that David, the psalmist, can't, can't almost believe to be true. He perceives our thoughts. He knows our ways. Whatever we are going through, he is there. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, why is this important when we think about discipleship? Because the way we live, our actions and habits, flows from an identity. And an identity comes from living out a story. Not a fictional story, but a driving narrative to live by and therefore allow to form and shape who we are becoming. The first chapter of the story of the followers of Jesus is that we were created by a loving God. And so who are we? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're his workmanship. We are sons and daughters of God. We are not our own, but belong to him. We are forgiven. We are friends of God. I could go on and on. That is who we are. And the tragedy of uh, Genesis, of course, is the introduction of an alternate story. In chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to Eve. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what makes this story, the situation, the more tragic is that the reward that the serpent entices Eve with is one that she already and we already possessed to be like God when she was already made in his image, in his likeness. And this, this story, this alternate story, it still permeates our culture today. It's still with us. And the driving narrative of our time is that it's all about us and it's all on us. It's all on you. Go define and make something of yourself. And the driving narrative of scripture is that it's not. It's not all on you. You are his and you're already more than you could ever hope to be. The story that our culture so often plays out is the story of the self. That we find who we truly are by looking inside through self-actualization or achievement or success. And I have some sympathy for that. If you remove God from your frame of reference, it doesn't change this, this longing in all of us for something sacred. And so what is the next best thing? It's probably us. But the thought of having to rely on me to find out who I am or to uh, make something of myself through my own achievement is like a pretty terrifying thought. I can already feel overwhelmed by the ways uh, the world has tried to shape or define me. And the only way that that has gone in my life is not so well. And this is true on a broader scale uh, as well. Just two examples from some secular uh, uh, books. Uh, in her book, The Power of Meaning, Emily Esofani Smith studied the most respected sources of wisdom and what they all agreed on uh, made a, a meaningful life. And she discovered that belonging, purpose, storytelling, and transcendence are the four pillars of meaning. And that because uh, the narrative our culture uh, doesn't really allow for, for those or most of those, the modern world is going through what she calls a crisis of meaning. This desire for purpose and meaning, it doesn't go away. And we work tirelessly to make something of ourselves, by ourselves. And French sociologist Alan Ehrenberg shows this in a slightly different way. In his book, The Weariness of the Self, he maps how the history of depression in the West has moved from being a symptom of kind of feelings of guilt 
um, or in a conflict uh, to become something that he would define or we would understand as feelings of inadequacy. Inadequacy because we can't live up to our own expectations or the expectations of our world. Crisis of meaning and feelings of inadequacy. Or could all of this be because the story we've chosen to live by as a culture, as a society, tells us that it's all on you? The road of the self is exhausting, but it is powerful. And if you look for it within our culture, you'll actually begin to see it everywhere. It's kind of all over the place and, and see how it's shaping us. Alan Noble in his book, uh, You're Not Your Own, says it better than I could. He says, whenever an ad invites you to feel alive through buying a product, Whenever a film implies that you will not be fulfilled until you embrace your inner self. Whenever an expert urges you to optimize your life. Whenever you feel inadequate in the face of overwhelming competition, call it what it is. This is an outworking of our contemporary anthropology. It's a false conception of the human persona that assumes that I am on my own and I'm solely responsible for making my life matter. It is a lie. I am not my own, but belong to Christ. Now, Psalm 139, it starts and it ends in a really uh, similar way, but with a really subtle difference. It starts by kind of saying things as they are, that God, he knows us. You search me, Lord, and you know me. But it actually ends repeating the same themes, but it ends with an invitation and a life surrendered, a life that is inviting God to be the ultimate guide. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Even though God knows us fully and completely, his desire for us, his relationship, to invite him to lead us and show us what we can't find on our own. It's to surrender to him. And so the start of this, this discipleship journey is knowing and recognizing which story we're part of and surrendering to him and that story. And with, with David, with the writer, it's almost as if he doesn't know his own heart, or at least he knows that God knows it better than he does. Search my heart and search my mind. Show me what I can't see. Show me where I lack and lead me. And why wouldn't, he, why wouldn't he say that? Why wouldn't he invite God to do that after everything he's just written and after everything he believes God to be? Wouldn't we all want to surrender our lives to a God like that? We so often don't really, truly know ourselves. We actually don't know how to fulfill this desire for meaning on our own, to focus in on ourselves. And we also don't stay the same. I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. I walk quicker for a start. But for followers of Jesus, part of surrendering to God, part of recognizing the story that we're part of, part of discipleship is knowing that we are actually flawed and that we have fallen short, that the self in so many ways cannot be trusted. Here's how J.K. Smith puts it. When you've realized that you don't even know yourself, that you're an enigma to yourself, and when you keep looking inward only to find an unplumbable depth of mystery and secrets and parts of yourself that are loathsome, then scripture isn't received as a list of commands. Instead, it breaks into your life as a light from outside and shows you the infinite God who loves you at the bottom of the abyss. We can't find ourselves by looking in. We find it because he has found us and we then look to him. And not only does God or did God create us 
But through Jesus, he's redeemed us as well, redeemed us from the lie of the alternate story that it is all on us for the ways we've failed and keep on failing. He keeps on loving. And so for us, whatever our family of origin, whatever has been spoken over us in our lives, whatever our past, this is who we are. We are loved by God. So discipleship is not just listening to a sermon on a Sunday or finding a wise mentor or finding some quiet time to pray and reflect. Those things all make up what discipleship can be, but it isn't just those things. Discipleship is the daily journey through the most difficult times and the most joyful times of knowing that we first and foremost are loved by our creator, by our redeemer, that we are seen by him, that we're led by him, and that we're invited to learn from him, to live a life that was what he called life to the full. And we're going to explore more of what that means for us over this series. So I'm just going to uh, pray for us as if the band want to come up. I'm going to pray a prayer that Paul prays over the Ephesians. And again, it's just this reminder of the story for followers of Jesus that we are part of. And the fact that he doesn't just kind of set us up to do this on our own, but he is with us all of the time um, through every moment. And that his love is always there, is always available for us. And this prayer, this, um, this story is an invitation as well. It's an open story for any one of us. Maybe we don't align ourselves to that right now. Maybe we don't identify as being a follower of Jesus. But it is, that invitation is always open to us. So as I read this prayer, maybe close your eyes and just remind yourself, or maybe even uh, understand for the first time just how God sees you, the love he has for you, and, uh, and we'll move through the service. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious, his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.